What's up, Disrupt Nation? My name is Anthony Delgado, and today we have a special guest, my friend Felix. Felix is a venture capitalist at Entrance Ventures. He's the managing general partner there, as well as heading uh, product vision at IBM uh, and the IBM Watson team. So very, very exciting. Uh, me and Felix, we, we originally connected in Disrupt Puerto Rico at, a, at our last event last year. And he uh, spoke on the investor panel, gave some really great insights to the people that were pitching their startups. And now we uh, we're connected on the podcast to talk about 2019, uh, what projects he's working on moving forward. And uh, yeah, he's just an awesome human being and, and working on a lot of emerging tech and uh, advisor to a lot of uh, a lot of disruptive startups, man. So Felix, thank you for being on the show, man. Uh, pleasure to be here, Anthony. So tell us, before we dive into all the cool stuff that you're working on now, tell us how did you first, first get introduced to tech? Interesting. So I, I think getting introduced to tech was a matter of necessity. I, I was born, I, you know, I grew up in Nigeria, where Nigeria is a huge hub for innovation, but it's not one of the most recognized places. So by, you know, just a matter of being um, in Nigeria, you know, you're, you're naturally introduced to people who are, you know, everyday innovating, and you also want to be a part of that. I, for me, it was more about trying to solve problems around me and um, just, you know, being a self-learner using YouTube when, you know, YouTube was pretty early to um, to learn that. That's just how the that's how the introduction started. So definitely, yeah, it reminds me of um, Puerto Rico. We have that startup culture here as well, and there's something about the entrepreneurship when you're in an emerging market where you're almost more resourceful, right? Like there's not as much venture capitalists flying around. There's not as much money flowing. And, you know, people have families to provide for, right? So they're, they're almost creating these digital products and, and doing this digital entrepreneurship out of a necessity. And because of that, they create like more sustainable companies. They create companies that are actually more profitable than maybe some of the Silicon Valley startups. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree with you on that. Um, when there are more problems, people get very creative. And, and I think this is why you see some, you know, very interesting companies um, pop out of Africa entirely or just anywhere where just emerging markets entirely in the, in the U S a Silicon Valley, like you mentioned, where I'm you know, quite familiar with, you see companies that are not to say the Ubers are not, you know, great, you know, they're, revo- uh, they're doing a lot of impact in transportation, but you see more companies in emerging markets that are actually solving real world problems that address, you know, healthcare, education. And that's because these are problems that people have actually experienced uh, personally. So definitely, definitely. Yeah, and it also reminds me of a company out of Puerto Rico, Brain High. So they uh, just got, got accepted into Y Combinator last year. They were one of the first companies to to do so. And they were the only company in their cohort that was profitable, profitable from day one. And they're like, yeah, dude, like we're here to, you know, um, it's a solution for, for medical facilities. And yeah, they were like, we need to be profitable. I mean, we have, we have mouths to feed and we have families to provide for and, you know, and we're super happy to be in Silicon Valley and get accepted into the startup, but like, no, we need to be profitable first. Uh, absolutely. That, that's the right mindset. Every company should, you know, at least every startup should have raising venture capital. It's not the goal of building a sustainable company. Uh, it, it should be the goal for most companies and solving real world problems. So Definitely. Definitely. So then walk us through, you know, how you got involved uh, with IBM and, and uh, what you do there. 
So um, I actually started off my, on a large scale, I sell Fortune 500 career at IBM um, back in 2012, I believe, 2012, 2013, as a software engineer on a product that became Watson, it was an SPSS. So I did a lot of work at IBM and left um, IBM after a while and just returned to IBM earlier this year as an advisory offering manager, what is known in the world as product manager, so advisory product manager. And I work on um, a couple of things within Watson and cloud. Um, you know, as big as IBM is, it's a, it's a family of, you know, it's a company of over almost 400,000 employees and products that are used globally by um, B2B companies or just enterprise companies entirely. So my work is pulling together most of the experience I have in building products outside of the United States or locally within the United States and helping IBM implement the same. But most especially um, helping IBM actually understand how to communicate what they build to millennials entirely. How do you get a company as IBM to talk to the everyday person? How do you get IBM? How do you get Felix to understand IBM or do you get Anthony to understand IBM? That's what I help with as well. So that, that's mainly the work I do. And um, every opportunity to, to increase diversity within IBM is something I'm, um, you know, actively involved in as well. Definitely, definitely. How how's your role differed from you know when you when you were there back in in 2013 to now you're returning, um, obviously at a, at a more senior role, right? How's your role differed from then to now? Like, were, were you doing like DevOps and like coding back then? And then like, how, how has that paradigm shift in the, in the last, uh, you know, half a decade? Absolutely. So back when I joined IBM, uh, I've, have, you know, I've had uh, significant career progression within IBM uh, while, even while I was there previously. It, one was, you know, one, you're, you're taking a vision of someone and you're implementing and building it out for them and, you, you know, translating that to customers and getting them to use it. Today, what I do is actually help drive vision of where the product goes, where the customers, how do we identify them, how do we, you know, identify the pain points that they experience and then provide solutions to those problems. And, you know, beyond what I do is, you know, that has, you know beyond what I do in terms of career that's changed a lot is IBM as a whole. The IBM that I worked at, you know, <laughs> several years back, and IBM of today, it's a completely different company. Um, IBM is actively involved in the customer experience. Um, you know, it's consistently listening to people that, it, that, that use your products. And um, I think that's something every company should do today, especially considering the company has been you know, in existence for hundreds of years, right? Um, the company that was involved in landing the, man, the, the first man in the moon, uh, still in existence today. How, how can they evolve and how can they be here in the next 10 years? And that's, that's where I come into play and helping IBM drive that vision. Definitely, definitely. I love that. And then let's talk a little bit about um, about Entrance Ventures. Uh, what's what's the mission of that organization? And uh, what, what are some of the projects that you've been involved with there? Absolutely. So Entrance Ventures actually came out of my experience raising venture for my uh, for my company. So after I left IBM, I worked on two different startups. Um, one as a you know, chief product uh, officer helping to build solar energy, uh, provide solar energy to Nigeria. And the second was, um, you know, a travel company, um, or when I say travel experience company, where we were helping governments identify what people were interested in when they were visiting countries. And one of the hardest challenges as a person of color, or most especially someone who is not even, you know, a United States citizen, was finding capital. So when you said, I'm building this interesting product, then it's, it's in the market outside of the United States. Silicon Valley closes doors. So um, the second way, we're able to raise capital. Um, and raise, you know, the company became, got to a point of what we'll consider success. And I wanted to make sure that the next person who was knocking on the door to raise funding to 
work in something that really mattered beyond the United States scope, beyond you know the four walls of Silicon Valley, that they could actually be able to get that support. And that's what we're doing. So we pride ourselves in trying to in, in doing two things. One of the criteria is for the investment we do, one is that any company we invest in would have to have an operation in an African country. And the reason we do that is that in Africa, the population is about two, almost two, two billion people. How do you tap into this potential? If, you, if it's a company that's you know, looking at low end, low price, and they can certainly capitalize on the population to test out the product, evolve over time, and certainly get to scale. So we're ensuring that there's visibility for African startups. Um, that's the second thing, but most especially also bringing innovative companies from around the world into the continent. So that, those are the two key areas where we are, and um, we invest primarily in pre-seed and uh, seed, seed companies as well, companies at seed stage. Very cool, very cool. And I mean, I think you touched on some really good points. Like, you know, there is, um, there are barriers uh, in emerging markets um, to access to capital, to even um, even the mindset, right? Even the the startup mindset, I think, is a little bit different um, across the waters and and overseas, et cetera. Um, what do you think, you know, uh, leaders of startup communities and ecosystems, what, what can they do to like help foster uh, a more innovative, um, uh, a more innovative mindset and culture in the, the startup scenes in emerging markets and how can they like help bridge that gap? So, so I, I think today a problem that exists and, you know, those of us in Silicon Valley, we create this problem a lot is to, to give the perception that because companies like Uber and the rest of them are raising billions of dollars, that that's normal for everybody. We have to, we have to let people know that not all startups succeed, right? I know this is, people know this, but people really need to get this down to their mind. Well, a lot of companies you're going to build are not going to succeed and not because they're bad. Sometimes it's timing. A lot of it's just access to capital. So in, in one sense, uh, empathy plays a huge role in everything we do at, uh, at Entrance Ventures. And this, you know, this is also for my life. It's a consider that once you go through a role, your job is to ensure that you leave the door open for others to come true. So as a founder, you build a company that succeeds to get, get to a point. You want to ensure that you can also push back and invest in other companies, right? You can take your salary and do whatever you want if you, when you start getting paid, or you can invest in another company, no matter how little it is. So that, that's something that's very important. Solving the problems around you, it's a job for everybody, not a job for a company or a VC to fund or for you know, the wealthy to, to address. It's something we can start doing with a little, you know, the $100 we have in account, the $1 million we have. And for entrance ventures, we're one of the smallest funds you can think of. We're a two million dollar fund, um, so we, you know, we don't have the pockets of the, the soft banks and the rest of them. But we want to make sure that we can actually address um, key company uh, support key companies or key founders that are um, solving real world problems. And I, I think that's one way we actually push innovation because without capital, frankly, most companies are going to fail. So we want to ensure that they actually have access to capital to do so. Um, the, the other aspect of it is just celebrating other people who are doing something really well. It, it's beyond funds. If a company says, hey, I ha I'm having a mini launch. If I have the opportunity to be there, I will be there, right? It's beyond the money I can provide to them. It's a moral support as well. And, that, and I think that's, that goes a long way in encouraging a lot of people to get involved in problem solving, uh, unless so trying to build companies. I think the first thing to consider is um, problem solving beyond um, building companies. No, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think um you know, at least at least in Puerto Rico, we have uh 
uh, a hustle culture uh, with the youth, right? So like the millennials and, you know, people from the younger generation who are building these things, I feel like they get it. But then there's the old money um, on the island here and they want to like, you know, give you $10,000 for 50% of your company or something crazy, right? Like whatever, however much they want to give you, they want to take half your company, you know, and, you know, in the, you know, if you had a pizza shop or a, or a, you know, a food truck, that might make sense. <laughs> but I don't think they understand the economics of like a global digital um, startup, right. That can scale. Right. Um, so, so how do you think we can bridge the, the gap and the divide between, you know, older startups, uh, I mean, older companies and, and more traditional businesses, brick and mortar and like startups. Um, I, I don't know if I can answer that question the best because I haven't actually had experience traditionally with, with, um, you know, with maybe invested in, you know, brick and mortar companies since I'm, I'm more in a different, I focus a little bit differently, but from, from, you, you talked about something I think is very important, just the simple fact, the greed that it's a venture uh, and you hear this all the time. Someone, you, you give a very good example, someone gives you 5,000, $10,000 and that's for 50% of the company. And you find a lot of founders are in a very tight, um, you know, position that they end up accepting that those funds that they don't even have an opportunity to actually raise the next round because you know they already got squeezed out pretty tight. So I, I think this still comes back to the point that people focus so much on trying to build company. That's when you start giving equity. If you if you realize that what you're working on, you're problem solving. There's no equity for you to necessarily give. So you you want to start this a little bit differently. And and this is what worked for my company when we try to raise funds. The first thing we did was identify people around us who we actually cared, for, who, who cared for us, like people who could support you regardless of if, if funding was not a factor. You, you want to list those people out and then reach out to the resources that they have and say, hey, you know, could you give me $5,000 or $1,000 or whatever the case might be? $5,000 could be too much. It could be $100. And once you start fundraising from those people, imagine that those are the only funds you would ever get. And just build exactly based on that. Because I, I always say to these people like, oh, I, yeah, why would I want to you know, take 100K from you when I can go take a million dollars from somebody else? I'm like, you don't have to. But you can always realize that that might be the only money you're, you're actually going to get as a company. Um, or, you know, the $10,000 you get from your family and friends might be the only funds you ever get. So you, you have to realize that just the best funds you're going to get, the best funds you would get are from those who, who you know, who trust who, you, who trust in you or who believe in you, whatever the case might be, because they're not going to come knocking on your door the next morning. So you want to leverage them as much as possible, build a company, forget about that whole equity thing with, and, you know, with VCs. Yes, we want to we invest in great companies, but think, just imagine that those things never existed. A lot of companies have survived without having the traditional venture capital um, structure where VCs are taking equity or give it out, um, you know, right now convertible notes and the rest of them. So just try as much as possible to leverage your network first to raise as much money and build with that, then go to a VC and have some stake in, you know, make some, be able to make some decision and say, I've been able to raise $5,000. So I believe I can raise another 5k or whatever the case might be. And then it goes into um, actually convincing the VC that we can trust in you as an individual beyond, um, you know, your idea, right? A lot of people have great ideas. The most important thing is execution. So if you can actually show me you're resourceful enough to raise some money from the network you have, I'm more convinced that you, uh, you know, able, able to, um, you know, build a company or get the company to scale. So I, I think that's one way to look at it. I don't know if I address the, the case of brick and mortar versus startups, but for startups in particular, I think this is something that a lot of people need to start focusing on. Definitely. I mean, speaking about brick and mortar, 
um you know you have like incumbents like you know Amazon and Walmart these giant corporations and you know whether whether it's a it's a symptom of big business or big box business whatever you want to call it or it's a symptom of you know the digital economy or or both right how do you how can mom and pop type of stores compete you know with the uh, on a global scale right like 50% of e-commerce transactions go through amazon.com right so if you're a small business um whether you're a small e-commerce or whether you're you know a mom and pop brick and mortar right how how can businesses evolve and adapt um in the in the shadows of all these giants right okay so i i think one word to change is is the word com- compete right so if- Competing against Amazon, you know, a company or let's say another company with deep pockets is a very tough one to do for, you know, for a brick and mortar store that's been in existence for 20, 30 years with little to no access or, you know, they just have the name or they're just surviving. Competing is not what you want to do. You want to find ways to work with them, collaborate with them. Uh, And you find that, you know, even Amazon, I've read stories of Amazon doing the same thing with, with Walmart and, you know, at the very early stages of their business, working with Walmart and selling out their inventory. You want to find ways to sell on these platforms. And the reason you do this is to, today people care a lot more about fulfillment than just necessarily the product because they have a lot of options. If I can buy, I can buy one product from Amazon and get it in one hour. Why would I want to walk down to your store, you know, just waste my money and gas to go to go meet, to go to your brick and mortar store. So you have to find ways to leverage these solutions at this point. That's the best advice you can give, especially if capital is not, it's not the best, you know, the best friend you have. Um, the, the second is you can absolutely want to leverage digital, right? Um, a lot of the companies like Amazon are measuring a lot of things. They want to, they know how, how long it takes for someone to buy from the, um, from the website, how, how long, you know, how, how long products stay in carts without being purchased. You don't know this is a brick and mortar store unless you actually, uh, you know, unless you have a, you know, an omni-channel sales, um, you're running an omni-channel business. So it's very important to either leverage them or just, you know, simply get, ex- expect that something is going to change in your business. Is it a customers will completely change their behaviors and start buying online? or they just want to adapt with you. And some companies have survived that way as well. You might find a company that has a very strong brand and people are always going to go there. But how do you scale such businesses? That's, that's where digital comes in. And um, I, would, I would certainly say a brick and mortar store today, if it's possible, you, you certainly want to collaborate with platforms like Amazon. And um, even if it was in delivery alone, you can go to companies like FedEx and find ways to um, better your fulfillment because that's very important for company, for people, for customers today. They care more about fulfillment more than anything else. So um, brick and mortar just have to pay attention to this entirely. Definitely. There's another type of disruption that, um, you know, I spoke about it last year. I wrote a piece in Forbes about like the three industries that are going to get disrupted by automation. And one of the big ones that's really going to hit the middle class is the trucking industry, right? So in, in the States, you know, tractor trailer trucking, it's a really big industry. It's one of the, it's one of the really good middle class jobs that people can get and, and really provide a good income for their family. And, you know, Tesla and Amazon and these companies are coming out with ways to automate tractor trailer driving. And they're thinking within the next five years, uh, those jobs are going to start disappearing. Um, do you, you know, what, what advice do you think 
we can give to, you know, the coal miners and the tractor trailer truck drivers and, you know, or, or as a society, you know, what do you think the answer is to all these people going, um, you know, uh, going on the unemployment line, right? Um, there's Andrew Yang, who's a, a political um, candidate for 2020. Uh, he suggested like universal basic income. Like, what do you think with all the automation and the AI that's coming and all these manual jobs that are going to be going extinct? Uh, what do you think the, uh, the answer is, you know, both on a societal level and, you know, on a personal level? So, so I, I think this, this applies across the board, right? With in, innovation, as long as it's change, setting, there'll, be, there'll certainly be disruption, right? As you mentioned, AI, for example, people have fear that AI will take away jobs. And we've seen it in cases like, you know, even in Walmart, where you have self-serve um, checkout systems and some people lost their jobs. This is going to continuously happen. But what you have to also identify is as this happens, there are more jobs being created. There are also jobs being created. So as an individual, the most important thing for you beyond the job you do is improving as, an, as a person every single day better than you were the previous day. And if you can consistently put education first, not the traditional education in the sense you have to go to school, no, you can simply learn about how, I think everybody at this point should learn some form of coding. You've heard people talk about this a lot. And that's because the systems are built by people. And you know, as one job is you know, it's out of the way, they need expertise, industry expertise, to actually make it successful. So if the Tesla is there, you know, working in self-driving trucks and the rest of all those factors, they still need deep industry expertise from people who have done it. And that's where these people come in. So I, I, I can't necessarily say, you know, universal income is gonna solve the problem. I have not, I've, it's never crossed my mind. I think um, adding additional la layers of education to what you already know would always create an opportunity in places you've not been. So you can, today's AI, Several years ago, it was people using typewriters, computers came out, they evolved from that, and it's going to consistently happen day after day. You just have to find out opportunities to also learn from. And um, while this may not be the best answer for a lot of people, it's the reality of the world we live in. Education is one thing the world will set you apart. Um, not, not necessarily traditional education, to be clear. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, learning to code, right? Going to a coding boot camp, going to, you know, uh, they have project manager boot camps and all sorts of ways to augment your education, right? Correct. And, and certainly YouTube, right? Um, when I talk to the people, engineers at, at IBM, and they say, oh, how did you learn how to you know, code? How did you learn how to do this? I always say YouTube. And you know, some people are surprised. And I find it interesting because YouTube is a resource that a lot of people don't leverage. Um, it has, you, know, you have free content. Um, you can watch people run through demos of products. You can watch, or you can, or you can go pay for a bootcamp, right? Or you can just simply learn projects and actually work through them. I've used YouTube to learn 3D modeling from, you know, enhance my knowledge in AI products, um, practice a lot of projects. You can certainly do a lot of this, these things. You can, I've used it for even just speech, you know, speech writing. You can use it for a ton of things. And uh, it, again, you don't have to always spend money to gain knowledge. You can always get knowledge for free. In this case, YouTube is one platform as long as you have access to internet in this case. And I believe a lot of people in the United States would have access to that. So if, if that's the audience, you can start from there and certainly learn something new every single day. So that when the opportunity comes, you have something that you can actually add value to. Yeah, definitely. No, YouTube is amazing. It's just yeah. hours, endless hours of content. I think, I don't know, there's some crazy stat that like, I don't know, every hour there's as much content 
uh, on YouTube uploaded than like existed in all TV in the first like 40 years that they were making TV. Like some crazy statistic of, you know, the amount of content that's just being created for that platform and it's all free. And and while you mentioned that, I I hate to sound like this is a paid ad, but this is where podcasts come in as well. So if you listen to the this Rob podcast, you're hearing a lot of people with, from, with diverse backgrounds tell you about things they've done and how you can learn from the, the things they've done and implement it in your life. I think that's another value that people need to capture on. I, I listen to a lot, lots of podcasts, um, not necessarily because the people talking are the best people in the world, but because I can learn something from them. Uh, and I think that that's another layer of learning. Just simply, you know, while you're driving to work, you can have a podcast running. You can certainly listen to the Disrupt podcast or whatever, whatever you find to be the perfect um, fit for your for your preference um you know and, and just learn, learn something new it's it's beyond just spending dedicating time to learn and it can be a continuous process listen while you listen to music listen to podcasts as well and you can learn a no, whole lot definitely. You, you can learn more from people's mistakes sometimes than even their their wins right you can absolutely. learn more from their failures so that you don't make those same mistakes absolutely yeah definitely and what uh but besides our podcast i know we're your favorite podcast ever but besides ours what are some other ones that you like to check out so i i listen randomly um just because i i mean uh, investor side i listen a lot to investor related podcasts um jason is one person a lot of people who are interested in um, jason calacanis for those who don't know who's an angel uh, one of the uh, top angels in, in silicon valley um, I think he has about three unicorns. I, I listen a lot to his podcast. I follow them online. He has video sessions as well, um, where he invites um, speakers to um, of CEOs of companies to come on board and talk about how you know they build companies, challenges they faced, and um, he's. I think it's one everybody should um, certainly look into. Whether you're building a company, or you're raising funds, or you're building a new fund, Jason is someone to um, look into, and that's Jason Calacanis. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think there's. Um... Is definitely a, like a podcast revolution. I made a a video uh, in December, and I was saying, you know, 2019 is going to be the year of the podcast. And you know, lo and behold, in January we saw a Ron Burgundy podcast pop up, which is like you know, uh, backed by like the big uh, corporations. Um, Apple did a deal with Oprah. It's like all these like brand deals. The Rock, I think, launched the podcast. Like all these big brand deals are really getting into this medium. Um, and I think a big part of it is the the uh, dual time, right? Like you can listen to a podcast while you're at the gym. You can listen to the podcast while you're on your way to work. You know, while you're while you're working, right? Like you can literally just be consuming content and learning from people. You know, while you're multitasking, while you're cooking, while you're doing other things, right? Um, and like you mentioned, I mean, it's a new form of, of education. Absolutely. And I, I forgot to mention the name of Jason's, uh, for those who might want to look into it, it's called this week in startups. So it, it's a, it's a, um, a very good learning uh, environment. If you really want to just hear from people who have failed, like you met, like, um, Anthony mentioned the people who have succeeded as well, certainly want to look into that, um, just for the future. And then there's recode decode. I don't know if you've ever heard of those. But that, that's another very good podcast I listen to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I think Recode is uh, owned by Gimlet Media, which was acquired by Spotify this week. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Spotify acquired them for like I don't know, some crazy like $200 million or something. And uh, 
they're they're just a producer of podcasts. They have a they have Recode, they own Recode and a few other ones. And uh yeah, they they acquired uh two companies, Spotify. So Spotify acquired uh Gimlet Media, which is a podcast producer, almost like a Netflix of podcasts. And then they acquired Anchor, which is like a technology that distributes the podcast for creators. So, you know, Spotify just this week bought both of them, uh, you know, and announced it together at the same week. So they're taking it seriously. Uh, I know Apple is taking it seriously. So, you know, if you're if you're a content creator, you should definitely be starting a podcast. And that's actually why um, we just launched a podcast masterclass. So if anyone's interested in working with us one on one, we got a three a month boot camp where uh, you work with us one on one and we help you uh, launch your podcast. So, if anyone's interested in that, we'll we'll definitely throw a link in the show notes. But yeah, we've launched uh, about five podcasts so far with with entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs, and um, influencers and uh, business owners. And yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun curating it. You know, it's a it's a new medium. I mean, imagine anyone can start a radio show now. I mean, it's it's pretty pretty crazy. Absolutely. So yeah, speaking I, I of, it's definitely a game changer. And uh, it's, it's something for people, like you mentioned, if you are into media, you certainly want to look into this. Um, what it, you know, just generally where you're creating content or consuming content, um, certainly podcasts is, um, is, a, is a way to go. Definitely. Um, I know we're running low on time, but um, one thing I wanted to touch on, you were speaking, you know, we started talking about podcasts and all this stuff because uh, we were talking about education, right? right. And you know, uh, you know, you're from Africa. Um, this podcast is being recorded in Puerto Rico. We, we've been talking about emerging markets as well, right? And emerging markets where English, I'm not sure where in Africa you're from, if English was the first language or not. Um, but in Latin America, it's not, right? And there's like that language barrier, right? Do, do you guys have that in where you're from in Africa or no? So in, in, I'm from Nigeria, where English is the first language, but certainly there are um, multiple other languages within Nigeria as a whole. Um, so to some, for some people, certainly um, English is still a barrier, um, but to reach a large audience of Nigerians, um, English, you'll get to them using English. We'll get to most of them? Okay, cool. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I have a friend of mine, he, uh, he moved down to Puerto Rico because he just sold his company for like at like 700 million dollars some crazy exit right um so we moved down here for the tax benefits and he's from india so he's telling me about how in india they changed the national language to to english i I guess similar to nigeria um and they did that because they wanted the people in india to be able to compete and be you know a part of the global economy compete with the u.s right and they did that over 18 years ago and now there's 18 year old kids who are graduating from high school and don't speak Hindi. They don't speak it anymore. They only speak English. Um, and you know, there's like mixed cultural feelings about it, but at the same time, it's helped um, India rise as a, as a global, um, you know, competitor in the economy. Right. right. So I would say for Nigeria, I don't think we had, you know, Nigeria is British colonized and, by not out choosing, we ended up um, having to learn English. So, but what you'll find is that a lot of people who speak English still speak some of the language. I speak Igbo as much as I speak English. Um, so you find that, you know, people still have that culture. Culture is a huge part of Nigeria. 
um, you could not separate um, the language from the culture of where someone is from in, in Nigeria. So that would be, I don't think would necessarily have that problem. You will only see that for people who do not live within United, um, who, who do not live within Nigeria or who have never lived in Nigeria. That's where you find them with, you know, with the language barrier of actually knowing um, their local dialects or languages. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I think Puerto Rico is like kind of similar because we're Commonwealth of the United States. So um, I think it's like 35% of the population is completely fluent in English and probably the other half speak, speaks enough Spanglish, like English mixed with Spanish to get along. But, um, but in the rest of Latin America, I feel like there's, there's uh, definitely a divide. And, you know, it puts all of that YouTube content, just kind of circle it all the way back around, all of that YouTube content, all of those audio books, all of those podcasts, right? It puts all of that information out of grasp if you if you're not bilingual right if you're not bilingual right. i think that that's that's a very good point to make is you, you find that a lot of companies this is the same thing with a lot of companies especially in the e-commerce space and you would find that if you travel to some other country uh, let's say you go to france you would find you know a french version for you know uh, an e-commerce solution right and that's how they, they're starting to adapt to those locations or the, you know to solve the language barrier challenges and i think podcasts would have to get, get to some point where they can transcribe uh, you know, the voice to some of the language. That might be one way to get there. The other is to just simply tailor your audience to provide, you know, content for those, for people who, um, who do not understand English or who do not necessarily speak English. So that, that, that might be one way, but transcribing can be one way to solve it. And I, uh, you know, there could be multiple other ways we can explore, but um, certainly you can set, tailor your own content to a particular um, location if that's where, because you have to make this accessible to people because access is the most is that one of the biggest barriers, especially being Nigerian, that I've seen when it comes to education. When you just simply have no access to, you know, to information, you don't have access to that information, no matter how great it is to, to other people. So bar language barrier would certainly be one that disrupts, you know, that prevents people from actually learning and improving. Um, like we've talked about education for a long time now. And um, I, I think it will actually be good for you at some time to, to um, you know, maybe consider putting up a podcast where, um, it could be Spanish um, focused as well. I don't know if you've heard, you're already doing that, but I think that'll be really good to get some people involved. Yeah, no, definitely. It's definitely a a barrier for sure. And it's uh, something that we've been looking at, uh, maybe not on the podcast side, although that would be cool, but um, on the educational side for sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, trans translating that stuff um, over to Spanish because it, it does, it, it leaves a, a lot of people out. I mean, imagine it's almost like books that you can't open, right? Cause right. if you open it, you can't read it. So absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, cool. I got like two more questions. Um, one is if you had advice, if you had, uh, you know, uh, 180 seconds to give some advice to, uh, the 18 year old version of yourself, what advice would you give yourself? Um, I, I think the advice I'll give myself is to you is not to it's a, try not to pay attention to the little details. Focus more on the bigger things, because you know personally we all go through the journey of trying to figure out what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen the next day. And while it's great to plan, it's also great to understand the bigger the bigger picture of where you want to be. You could ask me what what are my plans are going to be tomorrow, and I would never have an answer. But if you ask me what my plan will be in the next one year, I would have accurate answer where I'll be. And somehow things, things fall in place. And I learned this in, in product as well. People who focus so much on the technology of how to deliver a solution end up getting disappointed when the te technology fails. But the people who have that idea of what they actually want to deliver, the outcome, 
are the people who actually end up um, successful because you can change the technology, but the outcome will always be the same. So try to focus more on the bigger picture of how, where you want to be and not worry so much about the little details. Definitely. I love that. Um, and the last question that I have is what does disrupt mean to you? Um, that's the, the word disrupt. When I hear it, I think, you know, two, one word comes to mind first, which is stop. The second is status quo. Changing status quo, how it is today, you have to change it. Um, you hear, you're going to hear this every single day. This is how we've always done it. Disrupt the solution. Change the status quo. Do something different. That's what it means to me. And I, I live by this every single day. I love it. Well, Felix, thank you so much for being on the show, brother. If people want to connect with you on social media, they want to connect with you online, learn more about what you're doing, where are the best places to do that? Um, I think uh, Instagram will be the best channel. LinkedIn is another. Um, LinkedIn and Instagram for, for Instagram is just my first name, last name is C. So it's Felix Equime C. Um, and then same for, same for LinkedIn as well. So um, I use my, my, my Instagram to talk about a lot about investing and also use it to invest. I actually have found a couple companies from Instagram um, that I've invested in. So Very cool. Well, Felix, thank you so much again for being on the show, brother. And yeah, I hope to have you uh, back in Puerto Rico sometime soon. Awesome. It's a pleasure. Always happy to be back in Puerto Rico anytime. All right. Talk soon.